Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, once again we come before you and it is our time to worship you through the study of your word. We're grateful that we can come to do that in this country, that we have the freedom to be able to open your word and not be challenged by the authorities, to not be those who are fearful because we worship you as the living and true God. And so this morning as we open your word together, help our understanding, help us to grab what you have for us, to grasp it with our understanding so that we might know you more and rest securely in what you have said to us by your grace and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's great to be back this morning. I'll ask you to take your Bibles again and turn in them to our study of Romans, particularly Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we, we need to return to our text from last Lord's Day because it is my intent this morning to ensure that we are not confused at the meaning of what is being said. One of the greatest dangers for a preacher is that as a preacher you have to use words. And um, one of the enhancements of that danger is the fact that we have recording devices, not only recording my voice, but recording a picture of me saying what I'm saying. And that only enhances the danger of the fact that I have to use words. Any time that words are used, there is a potential for confusion happening in the minds of those who are hearing it. And that happens for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's because of us as hearers and our inattention and the things that go on within our own life that distract us. And some of those other things have to do with the preacher. Now some of you may be asking, why is he starting like this? The answer to that question is because there were several of you who came to me after last Lord's Day morning message and spoke to me about something that was being said that I was speaking about in a confusing way. So the first thing that I can say to that is that I am thankful that people in this church are listening. Not everybody that is here sleeps, and I'm glad of that. If it was a test, you would have gotten an A plus on your answers. So thank you for listening. I just want to be upfront and say that initially. Thank you for listening and thank you for coming to me so quickly in this. Now the confusion came last Lord's Day in my explanation of verse 29 of Romans chapter 9. The quotation that Paul uses from Isaiah that says, except the Lord of Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. And last Lord's Day, when we entertained that verse and this passage, this section, I spoke to the issue of God being the master of eternal rest, the Lord of the Sabbath. And I spoke to that at some length, I guess, in, in many ways. However, I was unclear on the issue because here in this verse, Sabbath is not the word being used here. It says Sabaoth, Sabaoth, not Sabbath. The word here is Sabaoth. It's a different word. It is a word that means hosts or armies. That's really what the word means. Hosts or armies. Now, I want to spend some time on this so that we're clear overall. We need to remember what was taking place in this text, in Romans chapter 9 in particular, but also throughout the entire epistle, just by way of reminder to us. What is being argued here by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, and I would even argue is being argued by the Apostle Paul through the entire epistle, is that God is absolutely sovereign in all things. 
I mean, that is really an essential truth, not only here in Romans chapter 9 in an acute fashion, but also in the entire book. God is absolutely sovereign in all things. You can go all the way back to chapter 1 in Paul in verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. That, in essence, is saying God is absolute in salvation. God is absolutely sovereign. And Paul uh, drives that point home all the way through this epistle, but acutely here in Romans chapter 9. God is sovereign in all things, and by all things... It includes especially our salvation. God is sovereign in the breath we take. He is sovereign in the days we live. He is sovereign in how many hairs are on our head. He is sovereign in all things, but acutely so in our salvation. In other words, without God doing something on our behalf, without God intervening in us, in our lives, without God extending mercy to those whom God saves, the reality would be, if God had not done that, if God were not sovereign in salvation, then none would be saved. Those are the only two options. If God is not sovereign, there is no salvation. Why? Because man cannot save himself. Man cannot save himself. And therefore, we can and do have an absolute assurance, as we talked about in the preceding chapters to chapter 9, we have an absolute assurance in our salvation because of God's sovereignty. Because of God's power. Because God is over everything. So that is really the main drive of this text in Romans chapter 9 and this book, God's Sovereignty. And His sovereignty is acutely highlighted in our salvation because of that fact of the reality of the condition of our soul. We, as humans, are dead. We are the walking dead. We are, prior to salvation, dead. The Apostle Paul has been very clear on that throughout our study. Man is completely spiritually corrupt And therefore, man cannot save himself. And so when you get to verse 29 of chapter 9, Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 1 in order to highlight the reality of God's sovereignty to the Jew. The Jews had an issue with this this in their minds, not in a grand concept, but in a personal concept. That God was sovereign in saving them personally. And by implication, it's the same with us. There's an issue with the sovereignty of God, particularly when it comes to salvation. This is why you have so many aberrant realities to how people get saved, even in evangelicalism. That somehow there's some spark of light within man that he can for somehow fan the flame so that he chooses God by his own means and through his own efforts. This is why you have aberrant theologies all over the place. This is why Roman Catholicism of our day is so bent on doing works and trying to have Jesus plus everything that I can do add up to a pile of righteousness by which God will accept me. And if not, then have everybody who's left behind after you die pray you hopefully out of the fiery place. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. So Paul, in Romans chapter 9 and verse 29, is quoting from Isaiah in order to highlight the reality of God's sovereignty. So I want to take a moment and just go back to Isaiah chapter 1 and get a glimpse of what was happening with Israel. Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, we can clearly see that Isaiah, who is a prophet of God, uh, prophets of God, particularly in the Old Testament, spoke on behalf of God. They didn't make up what they said. That's a false prophet. They only said what God told them to say. If you were a true prophet, that's what you did. And Isaiah is one of these prophets. He's called by God. And God calls him to speak on his behalf to the nation of Israel during 
the reign of several of their kings. Several of the kings. Now we understand that during the time that Isaiah is writing, in this time of history, the nation of Israel is a divided nation. It is a divided nation. Ten tribes had been taken to the north, and there were two tribes left in the south. All that happened under the reigns of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, one a son of Solomon, and they took the tribes and they split the kingdom. So there's two tribes to the south, there's ten tribes to the north, and in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah is sent to prophesy to Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the current king who is reigning in Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom, the two tribes in the south. So he's the king of that kingdom. He's he's not the king of the ten tribes of the north, normally referred to as Israel in the Old Testament. He's the king in Judah. Now Hezekiah, for the most part, at least as compared to other kings in the nation, was a good king. Uh, He had been faithful to God. And the nations around them, the nations that had surrounded Israel, were regularly attempting to engage in war with Hezekiah. Pagan nations and those who were out on the outskirts, even the, the north at times, attempting to fight against their own people. And the world power that was the greatest in this time was the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the the world power on the stage that God was using to accomplish His purposes both with Israel as well as in the lives of Gentiles who rejected Him. So the Assyrians faced the wrath of God just like everybody else. But around 701 B.C., 700 years before the onset of Jesus Christ on the scene, the Assyrian army, led by a man named Sennacherib, came and overran Judah overran the southern kingdom in Judah. The army that came with him, along with Sanctuary, ruined all of the crops that were in the area. All of the cities were left in ruin, except for Jerusalem. They were at the gates. They were outside the city, ready to besiege Jerusalem. And in response to the attack, Hezekiah prays, because Sennacherib and his troops, in fact, the, the Rimshaka, it says in the, in the Old Testament, is outside mocking the people who are on the wall, saying, don't listen to Hezekiah, don't listen to what he tells you, the God whom he serves isn't going to save you. After all, all the gods of the kingdoms who came before, all the nations we have have crushed, their gods didn't do anything to help them. What makes you think your God's going to do anything? We're the most powerful people in the world. Hezekiah prays, and he prays, and God speaks to Isaiah... And says, go tell Hezekiah this. And you can read about that in Isaiah 36 and 37. This is some background of the scene that had happened with Judah, with the people there. But in response to this attack from Sennacherib, Isaiah prays and the Lord miraculously delivers the city, delivers Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib. And you can read about that, like I said, in Isaiah 36 and 37, how God routed the Assyrian army. One morning they woke up and 185,000 of their soldiers had just died miraculously overnight. And so Sennacherib runs like a dog with his tail between his legs back to his own homeland only to be killed by his own boys And very shortly after that as he's worshiping a false god. But even though God had rescued Judah, even though God had rescued them, In the aftermath of the invasion, God confronts the people about their personal rebellion toward Him. And so in Isaiah chapter 1, now Isaiah is not laid out chronologically, so that's why I said you can read about it in 36-37, but in chapter 1, we get a glimpse of the confrontation that God has with the Jews. And it begins like a courtroom session. Right, You get verse 1 and it tells us who Isaiah is in a little glimpse of a picture and when he reigned. And then in verse 2 you get this courtroom beginning. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. So here is the courtroom being called. It's time to assemble the court. God is holding court. God is on the throne. He is calling the courtroom together. God has assumed His position as the prosecutor. And Judah, who is here, by the way, in 
Isaiah chapter 1 called Israel in verse 3. You notice that? It's, it's just a reference to the people of God, Israel, even though he's speaking with the southern kingdom. They are the defendant in this case. And all of the heavens and all of the earth are summoned as witnesses. And God has accusations against them. And the accusations are very clear. Notice verse 2, For the Lord speaks, Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now, from our human perspective, it almost sounds like they're a bit ignorant. Israel is just ignorant of who God is. God says, here, here is my people. Children I've raised. Kids in my own house. Those whom I've cared for. I've reared them. I've brought them up. And they've revolted against me. We get a glimpse into this reality of God with the people. I've done everything to meet their needs. I've done everything to raise them properly. And you would expect in that kind of relationship, in that kind of giving of a father to his children, of God giving to his people, you would have expected them to respond with some kind of thankfulness. Oh God, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you for being our supply. And we'll certainly follow you. You have been gracious and merciful and and given to us everything that we've ever needed. You'd think they'd be thankful for that. But they rejected. They've revolted against God. They rebelled against His authority. And you can tell by the language used that this kind of response to God is absolutely unthinkable. It's unthinkable. I mean, look at the sarcasm in verse 3. An ox knows its owner. A, a donkey knows its own master's manger. I mean, the beasts of burden that God gives to plow the field and do the work for the hand of man, the, the gracious gift like that, those kinds of beasts, they don't do what you're doing. They don't rebel against that. They don't bite the hand that feeds them. They know their master. But not you, Israel. Not you, Judah. They are thoroughly corrupt. They've totally turned their back on God. Look at verse 4 and following. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. You're totally gone. You've turned your back on me. And there's nothing good in you. And there are natural consequences to sin. There are natural consequences to sin. Look at verse 7 and 8. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion, that's Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. I mean, it's as if there's been complete neglect taking place all over the place. Why? Simply because of a rebellious heart. A heart that doesn't want to have anything to do with God. And verse 9 says, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and would be like Gomorrah. Why? Why? That's the verse that Paul's quoting in Romans chapter 9. That's the very verse that Paul takes into Romans chapter 9 in dealing with the sovereignty of God. Why why is that being said? 
Because all of us must understand that God is sovereign in all things. That's the point. That's the idea. That's the drive of Romans 9, verse 29. All of us must understand that God is sovereign in all things, especially when it comes to salvation. Now, I use those words that way because it helps us kind of put a a, a fine laser point on the reality of salvation because it's easy for us to go, yeah, God's sovereign in all things. However, I had something to do with my salvation. No, you didn't. God is sovereign in all things, especially in salvation. Isaiah, rather God through Isaiah, wanted the Jews to know that unless he had done something to rescue them from the Assyrian army, unless God had done something, then they would have become just like the cities in the plain that you read about in Genesis chapter 19. They would have become the bottom of the barbecue, a smoking ember, worthless nothing, nothing left. Why? Because of their rebellion against their Creator. Because of their revolting against God. They were completely consumed in their sin. And they were absolutely responsible for the outpouring of the wrath of God upon them. No one else was responsible for that. They had rebelled against God. Corporately as a nation and individually as a person. They were responsible for that, and God was holding them personally responsible for it. And Isaiah is saying that the outcome would have been the same for Israel if God had not done something to rescue them. God would have made them like Sodom and Gomorrah if He hadn't done something to rescue them. Don't don't let that miss your mind. Don't let that miss your mind. They are the revolters. They are the ones who are completely, totally enveloped in sin. They have abandoned the Lord, and yet God says, unless I did something, you'd be totally consumed. It was God who caused Sennacherib to flee. It had nothing to do with Israel. It had nothing to do with them somehow turning righteous on their own. It had nothing to do with them in their, in their own mind, in their own hearts, going to uh, try to pursue God. If God had not done something, then they would have been completely annihilated. Now here is a key point for us to remember. Here is a key point for us to remember. Not the main point, but here's a key point for us to remember. God doesn't tolerate rebellion against Him. God does not tolerate rebellion against Him. He must punish sin because He's righteous. He must act righteously or He's not God. And so when we go back to Romans chapter 9... Go back to Romans chapter 9. We can understand why Paul is reiterating this same truth to the Jews of his day. We can understand why Paul has been saying this all along. Why he has been developing this whole point all the way from verse 6. The sovereignty of God in saving anybody. Unless the sovereign God does something. No one is saved. Let me say that again. Unless sovereign God does something, nobody is saved. Unless the Lord Sabaoth, Isaiah 1, verse 20, or verse 9 of chapter 1, except the Lord of Sabbath. Don't let the word of confuse you because Sabbath means of hosts. Unless the Lord of Sabbath, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a posterity, we would be like Sodom and like Gomorrah. We'd be like the barbecue. Unless the sovereign Lord, unless the Lord of the armies 
does something for those who do not deserve it, no one is saved. Did Israel deserve to be rescued from the Assyrians? Because God looked down the annals of time and saw that they would turn back to Him if the Assyrian army came and threatened them at the city. And God saw them and said, Huh, wow, they're going to they're gonna actually choose me. Well, I'll save them then. Absolutely not. They did nothing but rebelled against God. They were worse than the beasts of burden against God. Unless God did something, they would have remained... And become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that is all simply to say that unless God acts, no one will ever be saved. Unless God acts, no one will ever be saved. Why? Because we have all rebelled against God. We are all just like Judah in 700 B.C. We are ungrateful. We oftentimes are ungodly. If not, at least prior to salvation, this is true of us all the time. Sadly, it's true of us even after salvation some of the time. Ungrateful, ungodly. By nature, by our own human fallen nature, we are just like them. We are rebellious. We are rejecters of God. Just like the nation of Israel who deserve total, complete, and eternal destruction. But a remnant will be saved. Why? Why? Why did God act? Why? The only answer the only viable answer that anybody could ever give is because of the mercy and power of the Lord of hosts. Only because of the mercy and power of the Lord Sabaoth. That has been Paul's point the whole time, hasn't it? Salvation is entirely God's action. Salvation is entirely God's action. Remember verse 11? For though the twins were not yet born, and though they had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to His choice might stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. There it is. There it is again. We talked about it then. We need to highlight it now. We who are saved, we sit here this morning in that glorious condition, in that absolutely secure place, not because of something we did, not because someday we woke up and we went, man, this makes sense to me. I think I'll believe it now. No, it was God who did something. None of us deserve to be saved. Every single one of us, prior to God doing something, have earned the penalty due our sin, which is death. Paul has told us that already. The wages of sin is death. He doesn't mean physical death, although that's attributed to the reality of sin. When sin entered in, death came. But he means eternal death. Eternal death. A separation from God forever. That's what we have earned. We all deserve to be consumed by the fires of hell forever. We all deserve to be the resemblance of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what we deserve. None of us deserve salvation. And none of us can save ourselves. And so Paul is saying the fact that any of us are saved at all can only be attributed to one thing. The fact that any of us are saved at all can only be attributed to one thing and one thing only. The mercy and the grace of God to save. That's it. 
One thing attributes to our salvation. The mercy and the grace of God. We have to remember that, beloved. No person dies without the penalty. No person dies without the penalty. The issue is, who is paying for your penalty? That's the issue. Nobody's going to their eternal place without the penalty. It's attached to you. The issue is, who's paying for it? One commentator has rightly said, he said it this way, quote, The fact that there is a remnant, the fact that there is a seed left, is entirely due to the amazing purpose of God, who is forming a people for Himself, in and through His only begotten Son, whom He sent into the world to take on human nature, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And, and he is building up a new humanity in Christ. Some Jews, some Gentiles. And nobody can level a word of legitimate complaint. Why? Because we all deserve to be damned and destroyed. And God in his sovereign choice is perfectly free. Unquote. He's perfectly free. And so when you get this Romans chapter 9 at the end, Paul has proved his point, hasn't he? Paul has proved his point. Unless the Lord of hosts has left a seed, no one would be saved. Unless God was sovereign in salvation, Paul's saying, nobody's saved. An unsovereign God saves nobody. Because an unsovereign God doesn't have the power to save anybody. Only the sovereign God saves. And unless God is sovereign, nobody is saved. The fact is that you and I are not saved by some kind of effort. We are not saved by some kind of right kind of emotion. We are not saved by signing a card and walking an aisle and praying some kind of quote-unquote prayer that is a, a, a systematic cookie-cutter thing that someone says is a magic bullet for them to get to glory. We are not saved by that. We are not saved by our birthright. We are not saved because we're a good person. The Jews were not saved because they were Jews. It's only because God saves. He is the Lord Sabaoth. He's the Lord of hosts who has left a seed. And if He had not, none of us would be saved at all. So by implication then, the means, or that means that it's impossible to become a Christian by a decision. Let me say that again. Because I, wanna, I want us to be clear on the issue between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The implication of what I have said up to this point is this. It's impossible to become a Christian by a decision. We are made Christians, not by a decision. We are made Christians by the power of God through the gospel of grace. It is the power of God to save. We are made God's children by the power of God through the gospel of grace because God marked us out before the foundation of the world and He sees to it that we are born new as believers through faith. We are completely and utterly unable to save ourselves or do anything right toward God. And so therefore God in His unconditional mercy and grace toward us wasn't conditioned upon anything in us. His unconditional mercy he, by His grace, sent Christ as the sacrifice for our sin that paid the total and complete price so that God 
could justify the ungodly. And God in time, as He has set forth His plan of redemption to do that in time, calls us to Himself. And when God calls those whom He has chosen to save, they do not resist it. You know why? Because they cannot resist it. I've never seen a man dying on a, on a, on a, 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 a table in the hospital whose heart stopped. I've never seen that kind of person resist a doctor putting the, 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 the paddles on his heart to thump his heart back to life. I've never seen one resist that. I've never seen one put his hand up and say, wait a minute, nope, you're not doing that to me. When God calls, you cannot resist because it's the power of God. You don't have the power over God. And therefore, God saves you and gives you faith to believe. And then He ensures that you remain to the very end. The work of salvation, beloved, is entirely His. It's all God's. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 can't be clearer. By grace we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Which is exactly what verses 30 through 33 drive home in Romans chapter 9. What do we say then? These Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness... Somehow they received righteousness. Somehow they attained righteousness. A righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, a religious people, a people who were zealous for the things of God, as you'll see in verse 2 of chapter 10, Paul says, I bear them witness that they have zeal for God. A religious people, a people who were pursuing this idea that they had in their minds about what it meant to be right with God. They're pursuing a law of righteousness. But they didn't arrive at righteousness. Even though they pursued it with zeal. But Gentiles, who didn't even have that, somehow found righteousness. They attained righteousness. Yeah, because it's a righteousness by faith. And it's a faith that is not born in the heart of man. Paul says these were Gentiles. Uh, that word has a lot of connotations other than the word ethnos, which is the original word Gentiles. It, it, it means more than just simply people who aren't Jews. It really has the connotation of those who didn't pursue righteousness at all in any kind of way. I mean, these were... By implication, these are people who had no interest at all in any kind of relationship with a God, even if there was a God. These were the pagan nations around who, who if they had a relationship with any kind of God, it was a God of their own making. It was a God of wood or a God of silver, a, a God that they, that they made themselves. They weren't seeking it. They weren't even interested in it. They were without God, as Paul says in Ephesians. In the world, without God. They were following after their own gods. Gods of pleasure. Gods of the world. They were you and I before we were saved. They were us. Living in the world, living for us, doing our own thing. Oh, we might have acknowledged that there was a God. We might have been taking our depravity to the place where we say God doesn't exist. But they were just like us, serving ourselves, doing our own thing, had no interest in the things of God, following our pleasures, following our passions, doing whatever we wanted to do, serving and worshiping the gods of our own making. No interest in God at all, only interest in ourselves. As Paul says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And yet, amazingly, and yet, amazingly, and yet, maybe this is a better word, miraculously, God opened our eyes and we believed. 
miraculously. Why? Why? Why did we believe? We certainly weren't interested in God. We certainly didn't think about being under wrath. I mean, that was a notion of the freaks of religion. And yet, here we are. We gained righteousness. And so here we are, confronted with this incredible reality. You and I, who never gave a single thought to God, are right with God now. And others, who were religious and gave every effort to being right with God, were not right with Him now. That's, that's what's behind this in verse 30 and 31. This is what's in, in, the, in the mind of the Jew. What are you talking about, Paul? How can you say these people don't have any interest in God at all? We, we're the people of God. We pursue the law. We do the things of God. Why is it like that, they're saying? Paul says, I'll tell you, here's the simple reason. Because God is sovereign in His choice to save. Because Isaiah 1.9 is true. Then unless God had chosen to save any, nobody would be saved at all. You see, the trouble with personal religious effort to be justified, the problem with every other religion other than true Christianity is that personal effort to be justified means that you have to be perfect in all those efforts in order to be justified. You have to be perfect in all of those efforts to be justified. And it is clear that none are perfect. In fact, you'll even hear someone say that when you confront them with that reality. They say, well, listen, nobody's perfect. We're all we're humans. I mean, come on. They're, it's an indictment upon their own self. And basically it's saying that, listen, God wouldn't expect perfection from imperfect people. I mean, after all, God's lowered the standard to the place where we just have to be above our brothers and sisters at that level. As long as I'm better than you, then I'll escape the wrath. It's like the two guys that met the bear in the forest. And one guy sits down to put on his tennis shoes. He said, what are you doing? He said, you can't outrun a bear. He says, all i got to do is outrun you. That's what we think. As long as I'm better than you, God's wrath will fall on you, but it won't get me. I may come in smoking, but I'm coming in. Like one fool said to me one time here on a Sunday morning who doesn't, isn't part of this church, walked into this church, met me at my office, Randy, and a couple of the guys were there, and he stood at the door rebuking me for somebody in our church sharing the gospel with him, literally. And I said, listen, that's what we teach, that's what we believe, and if... You don't believe that. I just have one word to tell you. You're going you're gonna to go to hell. He said, listen, I'm going. You can put me in my grave with my shotguns. I'm going in guns blazing. Wow. Really? Nobody's perfect. And so God brings in the solution. And he gives those whom he saves... The power to live for Him once He saves them. What is that power? It's right here in verse 30. The power is faith. It's called faith. What saves us is God's sovereign choice to save. And He accomplishes that salvation through the power of the gospel. And by grace... He grants to those whom He has chosen faith to believe. That's what He does. Faith that believes in Jesus Christ and faith that strives to walk according to the commands of Christ. So the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign in salvation and that man is responsible for not believing. Let me say that again. 
The Bible teaches us that God is sovereign in salvation and that man is responsible for not believing the gospel. In other words, God is sovereign and all humanity is guilty. Those two truths must be left where they are. God is sovereign, all humanity is guilty, and so we can say, so we can conclude in that reality that election accounts for salvation. God's choice. God choosing to save. That accounts for salvation. But we cannot say that non-election or not being elect accounts for someone not being saved. We can't say that. Election accounts for salvation, but non-election does not account for being unsaved. In other words, God is the one who saves, because He's the one who elects. But the unsaved are personally responsible for their rejection of God. In other words, they're not not saved because He doesn't elect them. They're personally responsible for their own rejection of God. To say it another way, no one would be saved if it were not for God sovereignly choosing them. No one would be saved if it were not for God sovereignly choosing them. In other words, it is God alone who saves us. So the question comes into our minds as humans. This is what happens. The question comes into our minds. So why is anybody lost then? If God is the one who saves then why is anybody lost? That's our struggle. That's our struggle, isn't it? Okay, we, we, it's not hard for us to grasp the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. God's the one who saves. Then why is anybody lost? Is it because they are not elect? The only answer that we can give to that is no. No. It is not because they are not elect. What accounts for their lostness is not their non-election. What accounts for their lostness is their rejection of the gospel and their rejection is born from their condition, which is the condition of lostness. It's the condition of deadness. It's depravity. And they got that from their first parents, Adam and Eve. We were in Adam when Adam sinned. And because we are sinners, because we are sinners by nature, we reject the gospel. That's what we do. We reject the gospel, and that rejection is our responsibility alone. It is not God's responsibility. That's ours. That is why without God's electing mercy, none would be saved. We've seen this unfolded all the way from verse 6. God is sovereign. Man is guilty. God must save. Or man will be lost. We've seen this over and over and over again. This idea, all the way from chapter six and in, uh, I mean, uh, verse six in chapter nine, all the way to verse twenty-nine. God is sovereign; we are not. He's the potter; we're the clay. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How? God just let Pharaoh be what Pharaoh was. God didn't intervene in that. God didn't change Pharaoh's heart. God didn't elect Pharaoh unto that. He was. Fulfilling the purposes that God had in order to glorify God and for God to accomplish His purposes. And God's not responsible for Pharaoh. Pharaoh was responsible for Pharaoh because that's who Pharaoh was in his heart. Why is anybody lost? Only because they reject the gospel. Why is anybody saved? Only because God sovereignly chooses to save them. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. Compassion on whom he has compassion. So God's sovereignty in salvation and man's responsibility to believe. God has revealed both of those in the scriptures. Paul has taught both of those in this chapter. Paul believes both of those and we are expected to believe them both. Because that's who God is. I hope it's a little clearer than it was before. Let me see if I can end with a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones 
Maybe this will be helpful. Quote, he says, with these two doctrines, God's sovereign election and man's responsibility, there is no contradiction at all. But it depends on how you look at them. If you ask, how is any man saved? There is only one answer. It is because God has chosen him. How is a man lost then? A man is lost because he is willful with a, and a deliberate sinner and a proud and boastful sinner who rejects the offer of salvation. You see, that's both sides. He goes on to say, that is human responsibility. So we must be careful how we handle the doctrine of election. If you've ever thought that the doctrine of election means that man is not responsible, then you have it entirely wrong. Man is responsible, but the fact that man is responsible does not mean that man can save himself. Unquote. In other words, without God's intervention, our depraved condition will always prevent us from turning to God. Our depraved condition is a hater of God. A hater of the righteousness of God by means of how He wants righteousness to be about. It's not through the law. We'll see that in chapter 10. This was the difference. There is a righteousness of God, but it's not by the law. It's Christ who is the end of the law of righteousness for all who believe. It's faith. So God has to do something because we're unable. And therefore, according to His purposes and for His glory alone, God has mercy on whom He has mercy, compassion on whom He has compassion, in spite of the fact that none of us deserve mercy or compassion at all. So we can all sit here this morning and say, praise God for His sovereignty and salvation. Praise God that He's sovereign. And praise God that He's powerful to overcome my sin-sick soul. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for our time this morning. We thank you for what we've learned here. We thank you that with you it is clear. With fallen eyes, with eyes that are not yet fully perfected in our understanding, we, we have a hard time. It's difficult. It's difficult for us to, to allow those two realities taught so clearly in your word to rest side by side. And yet right there, we stand at the wall of worship. and We worship you for being a sovereign God who would, in your purpose and for your glory, choose to save any. And we pray with the heart of Paul that you would save, save our friends, save our relatives, save our children, save all who have rejected you and continue even this day to reject you. We pray that you would draw them to yourself, cause them to see, open their heart to the gospel that they might know you and know what salvation is. So thank you, Lord, for these things. Help us to rest in them by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.